My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to educate and teach, but to put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. On a brutal day like this one, where the Dow tumbled 370 points, S&P plunged 1.64%, and the Nasdaq plummeted 1.82%. One of the worst days for the bulls. You know what we got to do? We have to get into the minds of the sellers so we can figure out Who's making this market come down? You want to know if they know something, what they know, how to profit from it even. I mean, the sellers have to know more than we do, right? Actually, no. The truth is there are a million reasons why my people might sell. So you have to stop questioning your judgment for sticking with the stocks that you believe in. Not everything is worth throwing away. For example, uh, why did I often sell, sell in the month of September at my old hedge fund that I ran for 14 years? Well, lots of times it was because we were, all, we were just up so much that only an idiot would keep owning stocks into the fourth quarter. You only need to make your year once. I remember there was one year where we were up big. I mean, so big that we dumped everything right about now. Everything. And all I did every day was go watch the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Terrific film. Although not as good when you already knew who hired the one-armed man. And I kept going to the theater, though, because I wanted to make sure that I didn't put any money to work. The movie was so compelling that I could watch it endlessly. So did I sell stocks that September because of the fundamentals? No! I sold it because of the fugitive! I didn't kill my wife. My investors didn't care. Okay, maybe that's an extreme example of a hedge fund that sold $500 million worth of stocks where the selling meant nothing at all. We were simply up big for the year, and we didn't want to give the risk given the money back. But in the interest of trying to get to the bottom of this particular abyss... Let's go into the cranium of a typical seller on a day like today, and not with an ice axe, Trotsky style. First reason to sell, interest rates. Good reason. If you believe inflation is coming down fast enough, then you might think a 20-year Treasury bond yielding nearly 4.8% is a decent rate of return to lock in. Good enough to sell stocks and swap into the bond market. Now, it's been 16 years since long rates were this high. That might actually be tempting to a lot of people. Me, as rates go higher, guess what I think? I think they slow inflation. Therefore, stocks that have sold off because of inflation might be big beneficiaries of this moment. I suspect you'll get a better return from many of the stocks that you might have sold than you will get from the long-term treasuries right now because it's certainly reasonable that someone might want to sell a stock to get that risk-free return. And that's the only reason. Doesn't mean your stocks are wrong, though. It just means they finally have some serious competition. Again, acceptable, rational reason to sell, just one I don't agree with. Second reason to sell, macroeconomic weakness. You hear that term a lot. This morning, Cisco announced that it's buying Splunk, a data analytics software company, for $28 billion. Both Chuck Robbins, CEO of Cisco, Gary Steele, okay, who runs Splunk, talked about macro headwinds when they joined us in the set of Squawk on the Street. These headwinds certainly elongated the deal process for, uh, for Splunk, delayed but didn't stop big signings. Yes, There's a lot more risk in this environment, but that doesn't mean there won't be any deals at all. Stocks will come down to compensate for this weakness, and once it's priced in, we're back to normal. Difficult adjustment, though. 
Third reason to sell. You're scared, okay? I mean, I get you're just scared. Uh, you're up big, or maybe you just don't want to lose a lot of money. You lock in what you have, like I did with a fugitive every day. This kind of selling makes a ton of sense for money managers who will grade it on an annual basis. But it doesn't make sense for you, regular investors, because it presumes that you can get out and then get back in at a better level uh, when things are, you know, safer. Hardly anyone's that nimble to pull that off. In the end, selling when you're scared and buying when you're no longer scared translates into selling low and buying high. The bargains come when you're frightened, not when you're feeling good. Fourth reason, the Fed. Now, I often hear people are selling because of the Fed. I know it's, it's not like the Fed's sounding at all clear when it's at the bottom or the top. I mean, j Powell did say that there might need to be a slowdown which implies some serious layoffs if inflation doesn't simmer down. He repeatedly mentioned that we have to get to that 2% inflation level, and we're almost twice that. But is that really a good reason for you to sell at this point? In fighting inflation, the Fed's preserving the value of long-dated assets like stocks. Now, if you want to sell Amazon down more than 15 points from its high because of amorphous fears about the Fed, I get that. You fear the risk. But I recommend taking Jay Powell's word, accepting that things will be rocky for a while before they once get better. I don't, I don't really see any other way to look at it. We don't have some crazy person running the Fed. We've got a rational person who wants to bring inflation down as part of his mandate as the Fed chief, and he accepts that there could be some collateral damage like job losses. So own stocks that do well in inflation if you have to, like the oils. We bought one today for the Chapel Trust literally during our monthly meeting. And when the Fed wins the fight, lighten up a little on some of these commodity stocks. That's when they start losing value. Fifth reason to sell the political climate. Now, I recognize that the two parties have an insanely toxic relationship. It's even become toxic in the Republican ranks in the House of Representatives. I could make a big deal about a potential government shutdown. It's just that it won't impact the vast majority of your stocks. American politics are exhausting and discouraging and downright miserable. But I think that's already baked into the market. Sixth reason, the strikes. Now, we've been blessed with peaceful labor relations for so long, we can't even believe what's happened in Detroit, right? I mean, we're worried about the ripple effect. But you know that only 11% of the workers in this country are now unionized? That's much more in the old days. There won't be a ripple effect. Now, you might ask why the auto companies are letting UAW leader Sean Fain boss them around like their children. Me? I think, for instance, that the one that the Charitable Trust owns, Ford, should break ranks and tell the union that, unlike GM and Stellantis, it's been hiring additional employees in this country union employees, while GM and Slanders have been reducing them. Ford also has no temp- almost no temporary workers. The, the others are run with 10% plus temporary workers. Ford needs to stop the talks, walk away, and say to Fain that unless the union is willing to make a separate piece with Ford, it's going to lock everybody out for five months, which is much longer than the UAW strike fund can handle. Fain got in at a close vote with no mandate because there had been so much corruption at the top. That's why he was elected. But enough is enough. He's in charge of the UAW, not Ford. If you're selling because you see a wave of unionization, I think you haven't done your homework. Now, I think these are the, I, let's call them the big six. Now, some of them make sense. Others don't. But what you have to realize is that every time the stock market goes down, these reasons to sell all become less relevant. That's what lower prices do. They take points like these into account because now the stocks are cheaper. Bottom line. The Fed can't upend the rally because there isn't a rally. Higher rates won't send stocks lower because it's already down. And that's how you have to think about things like the stock market. Otherwise, you know what? There really isn't a level where it feels safe to own stocks other than at the top when nobody's worried about anything. That's not investing though. That's called stupidity. Let's go to Bob in Florida, please. Bob. Jimmy Chill, how are you doing today? Jimmy Chill is doing fine. What's happening? Good, good. Not much. Uh, hey, I just had a question on this stock uh, with it being like the number one athletic kind of brand that people wear. 
The chart looks good. What do you think about Lululemon right here? Okay, so here's the way you look at Lululemon. This is the kind I mean, people, when Lululemon reported, all right, everyone just said, oh, it's too high, it's too high, it's too high. I don't want to buy it. It's great. So now it's coming down. Why do people say, whoa, it's really scary? Hey, it can't be both. You put a little Lulu on at 380, and then you put a little on at 370. I want to buy 100 shares. You know, leave room so if it gets to 340, you buy your last 25. That's how you have to think about it. Let's go to Trey in Texas. Trey. Jim, my wife returned from the store today with a crop top rain jacket. Given their ability to sell 50% of a product at 200% of the price, is Target a screaming buy? Um, okay, so I happen to like Brian Cornell. I happen to like it sh- to shop at Target. Here, Target yields 3.75%. Holy cow. Uh, 15 times earnings. You know what? I am not going to fight someone who wants to buy a little Target here. I mean, it's, it's just going I like Walmart. I like Costco. I like Amazon. But I will not fight anybody. 3.75% and 15 times earnings. That is not a fight I want to take on. I'm going to go to Allen in Tennessee. Allen. Booyah, Jim. What Booyah. do you think of Denaher as a healthcare growth stock? Okay, now, this market does not like high multiple stocks. What they don't realize is that Danaher is a big beneficiary of the fact the IPO market's going to open again because of biotech. And it's a huge beneficiary of the fact that it's selling a, a, a company that is not, well, it's a good company, but buying a better company and make it so that people end up paying more for the stock. Danaher is one of the great growth stocks of all time, and you're getting it at a discount. All right, now listen to me. The lower this market goes, the less relevant the scary reasons to sell become. And that's how you have to think about a stock market. And you have to be ready to buy at lower prices than it gives you. On Man Money Tonight, nuclear power player Constellation Energy has had a big run so far this year. But could the recent surge in oil prices send this stock even higher? I'm checking in with the company's top brands. And the convenience store cohort, boy, is it taking a beating. But could there be a diamond in the rough among the group? I'm going to reveal the name that has bucked the trend in retail and is still overlooked by Wall Street. And the September gloom is still present in the market today, like big time, right? But could a buying opportunity be around the corner? Probably not. Hold it just a second. Why don't we check in with Kramer Fave Larry Williams to see if it's still negative? Because he's been right. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. You need to check in with your winners to make sure they can keep winning. Which brings me to Constellation Energy, the most the mostly nuclear-powered utility was spun off by Exelon earlier last year. We started recommending this almost immediately, and the stock has roared, in part because of the Inflation Reduction Act. It had some major subsidies for nuclear because it's the most effective way to produce power carbon-free at scale. While the stock stalled out a little bit of late, it's come roaring back in the past six months. Constellation keeps delivering spectacular results, including a blowout quarter a month and a half ago. Now the stock's also getting a boost, by the way, from the rally in oil. Because when traditional energy prices soar, nuclear looks a lot more attractive by comparison. And that's one of the reasons why Constellation is up nearly 28% year-to-date. Can it keep climbing? Let's check in with Joe Dominguez. He's the president and CEO of Constellation Energy. To learn more, Mr. Dominguez, welcome back to Mad Money. 
Hey, Jim, how you doing? Well, Joe, I got to tell you, it's not uh, usual to see a utility have a gigantic upside surprise. We're used to just steady and, frankly, uh, boring results. I like upside surprises. How did this happen? <laughs> well, uh, I like upside surprises, too, and I'm hoping we're not done giving them. Uh, Jim, I, you know, you touched on it a moment ago, and the IRA was a big catalyst. But the other thing that's going on is people are waking up to the point that if we're going to decarbonize and if we're going to connect all this stuff from vehicles, industry, home heating, more data centers, AI, all of that to the grid, it's going to be more important than ever that we have energy that operates when our customers need it. And so the advantage of nuclear over anything else in the market is not only its scale, but the fact is that next time this year, I know how our fleet is going to perform. On January 20th, regardless of the weather, regardless of what anybody faces, I know we're going to be 100% on. And that's important as we sell energy into the market. You know what? It's important to our customers, too, because what they found out in 2022 is even though they might think they're 100% clean because they bought wrecks from you know, wind farms and solar farms all over the country that in the aggregate produce enough energy to cover their annual yearly use of energy. It's that moment-to-moment energy that limits their volatility and allows them to get the best clean story. So that's what we're seeing, Jim. It's really been driven by our commercial business. We entered into this landmark agreement with Microsoft, where Microsoft is using wind, solar, and nuclear in combination. And the way it works is the nuclear fills the gap when the sun isn't shining or when the wind isn't blowing. And that gives them a 100% solution. A lot of our customers are interested in the same thing, and it's blowing it out. That's what I understand. I mean, when Microsoft gets his carbon-free energy for data centers, does that mean they're putting the data centers where you are, or they're actually getting some sort of credit for what they're doing? Well, right now, what they're doing is they're putting uh, the data centers near to generation centers for renewable energy. But historically, what people did is they put the data center wherever and they bought uh, renewable energy credits, which, you know, is just a legal certificate that says that uh, renewable energy was operating at some point during the course of the year. And they pretended, for example, that uh, energy they bought in April was being used in August at uh, the data center or the industrial facility. Microsoft wants to get beyond. They want to get to an hourly match solution. And we had a product that allowed them to do that. Now, what we are exploring, Jim, is kind of the next generation of this work with a whole bunch of entities where what we'll we'll be able to do is bring a data center or manufacturing capability like hydrogen behind the fence line of a plant. Right. And what that does is it gives them unprecedented levels of reliability and 100% clean energy right there where they need it. Well, so I mean, that's, that's pretty exciting. We're working on a lot of options on that. Well, we keep hearing about these companies. They want to be you know, carbon-free by 2030. 20. I mean, is it the easiest way to do it, just to relocate or build a lot of your stuff in one of your areas? Well, we think that's the, that's the right solution for a lot of folks. But, you know, look, the reality is that not every one of our customers, and, and we serve 75% of the Fortune 100 in the U.S. with – Uh, power and gas, right? So we have a lot of clients that have invested in industrial facilities at their location. So for them, it's not going to be, you know, a doable thing for them to lift up and move nearer to a plant. 
right? For them, what we need to do is a clean energy solution by wire where we could guarantee them regionally that clean energy is being produced at the time they're using it and we can match it second by second, just the way the grid has worked for over 100 years. That's where we've got to go to, right, if right. we're going to really decarbonize America. Now, you talked about hydrogen. That's one I'm fascinated by. And I, well, my chapel trust owns Lindy. And I, I mean, I keep being hopeful. But, you know, I mean, it, don't you need a lot of subsidies for hydrogen to really work? I think for clean hydrogen to work in the early going, Jim, you're right. I mean, yeah. it needs a jump start. And that's what the IRA was all about. Uh, to get to a, a cost that kind of matches what you could do with methane reformation, you're going to need a subsidy, I think, okay, yeah. just me, for over 10 years, which is what the world promises. All right. But I do fair. believe that you'll close the gap. Uh, right. But, you know, look, a lot of, it sounds like you're here. A lot of times in this space, we overpromise the ability to deliver right. quick economic results. And for things like electrolyzer development, the pipeline infrastructure that needs to come with hydrogen, the other things, there's, you know, we're going to have to earn that with investment, and the you're, country needs to. You're earn a truth teller about this because a lot of people come on the show and they can pie in this guy. Hey, listen, well, I've got you. Something I'm really proud about. We have a good network, NBC Universal. We're commemorating Hispanic Heritage Month, and my question to you, sir, is: Do you have any personal reflections on your heritage as it relates to your leadership at Constellation? <laughs> yeah, it's. It, it, I, I get this question. Uh, look, I think all of us that are immigrants to the country. And, and my parents came here from Cuba in the 50s. I was lucky to be born here. They love this country, they came with nothing. But my story is similar to millions of folks, Latinos and others, that have the benefit of DNA of people that were willing to drop everything, divorce themselves for their, from their language, their culture, familiar surroundings to get to a better place. And that's pretty good DNA for all, all of us to have. And frankly, it's what's made this country. And it's one of the things that I think sometimes we lose sight of when we're talking about complicated issues like immigration, that the lifeblood of this country, the inspiration, the passion about it has been immigrants that have come here, like your parents, like mine, who've done great things in this country. And I think the other thing that it gives you is beyond that kind of inherent advantage is, I think when you feel a little bit like an outsider growing up, and either you're made to feel that way or you just feel that way because you, you recognize differences. I think you lean into things a little bit differently. You hear people out a little bit differently and you value the uh, you know different opinions. And honestly, that's been probably the greatest advantage. I have so many talented people here at Constellation. I think it's the best team in the industry. And pulling them together and getting them to get to work together and bring their differences together in a way that creates a benefit for the company and ultimately for our customers in the country. That's what it's all about. So thanks for recognizing. Oh, that. absolutely. No, that was great. And I, what a great thing to say. I mean, we have so much division everywhere. It's nice to hear someone trying to put together a coalition of Americans. I think it's terrific. Joe Dominguez, the president and CEO of Constellation Energy. I love having you on. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself, Joe. Okay. Great to see you. Man. Dan Mike's back after the break. Coming up. Can the joy continue in Mudville? Casey's has been a hit with investors. Can the quick stop stock keep your portfolio well fed? Stick with Kramer. It 
At a time when the drug stores, and particularly the dollar stores, are in pretty bad shape, last week we got an incredibly strong quarter from Casey's General Stores, a convenience store chain with more than 2,500 locations, mostly in small towns in the Midwest. The stock shot up 11% in response last Tuesday, and it, it's kept running, making a new all-time high earlier this week. That's what caught my eye. I said, we got to dig deeper into this one. So for those of you not from the Midwest, what the heck is Casey's, and how in the world did they pull this off? You need to know that the stock's been a reliable long-term winner, up 24% for the year, 116% for the last five years, trouncing the S&P retail ETF, the XRT, which is down slightly for 2023 and only up less than 17% in the last five years. Not a great time to be in this group. At first glance, the company doesn't seem too special. It's, one of the, it's a, the third largest convenience store chain in America, the kind you can find almost anywhere. But unlike its rivals, Casey's deliberately puts up stores in extremely small communities. Roughly half of the locations are in towns with less than 5,000 people. Only a quarter of them are in places with more than 20,000 people. That means for the vast bulk of the locations, Casey's is the only is only competing with local grocery stores and local convenience stores. They're not going up against big national chains, which makes it easier for Casey's to provide superior service and a broader selection of goods at relatively low prices. Plus, their stores tend to be highway adjacent, which also gives them a lot of additional traffic. Still, what makes Casey's more than just a small town gas station with a food uh, place to grab some food? Well, for starters, Fuel made up about two-thirds of their sales in the, last fa- in the latest fiscal year. It only accounted for 35% of the gross profit. They're making most of their money from groceries, general merchandise, prepared food, and dispensed beverages. I know you, when you think you hear like convenience store food, uh, but listen to me. Casey's isn't just selling those weirdly colored hot dogs that have been spinning in display glass all day. They've got a wide assortment of freshly prepared and made-to-order foods, much higher quality than your typical gas station, especially the pizza. That's right, pizza. Casey's has been selling its handmade pizza for nearly 30 years. They're actually the fifth largest pizza chain in America, as measured by numbers of kitchens. If you're wondering who buy pizza from a gas station, You've probably never lived in an extremely small town because in the places where Casey General does business, people are crazy for their pizza. It's got an almost cult-like following. And frankly, they do things with pizza that might get some, someone institutionalized here in New York, like the breakfast pizza with sausage gravy instead of tomato sauce uh, top of bacon and eggs, of course. Now, this isn't some gag attraction either. This is what they're known for. Don't believe me? If you go, no, go to the About Us page on Casey's website right now and look under the pizza section. It's what they brag about, including the ultimate beer, cheese, breakfast pizza. Not exactly how we used to make them at the Longshoreman, my old white, my wife's old restaurant. But I, I almost said my old wife's restaurant. That would have been terrible. But I'm not going to say anything too critical about regional pizza preferences because i got enough haters on social media already. For us, what matters is that Casey's has been making a killing lately. Last week, despite sales coming in slightly below expectations, the company delivered a massive $1.16 earnings beat off a $3.36 basis thanks to higher profit margins on fuel and lower operating expenses. Their limited-time food offerings have drawn a lot of customers, especially the new Thin Crust Pizza, which, by the way, is a concept I can get into and maybe even give it an 8.2 on a one-bite scale. Casey's also has plans to grow by making acquisitions. They recently agreed to buy 63 convenience stores from EG America in Kentucky and Tennessee. That's one reason they raised their full-year store growth forecast from 100 new locations to 150. 
Now, Casey's hosted an Investor's Day uh, back in June, where Imagine explained how they keep up their long-term track record of success. And the answer is one word, plastics. No, actually, the word is consolidation. Convenience store chains with less than 50 locations still represent nearly 70% of the industry. Casey's believes these smaller operations simply don't have the scale to compete in this new world, which is why they can come in and acquire them, maybe add a kitchen and take market share all over the place. This has been their strategy for a while, in just the past three years. They put 259 additional locations. Longer term, the convenience store industry needs to cope with declining tobacco sales and what should be a gradual decline in fuel demand thanks to the rise of electric vehicles. But at Casey, 75% of their in-store transactions don't even include fuel. And they've been slowly reducing their tobacco mix for a while. The company's also adding electric vehicle charging stations in areas where electrics are popular. They want to give the customer what they want. At that investor uh, day, by the way, management laid out their long-term outlook through the 2026 fiscal year. They think they can increase their earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization at an 8 to 10% compound annual growth rate while adding 350 new stores. I think you got to believe them, right? In 2020, Casey's laid out a similar forecast through 2023 fiscal year, targeting the same 8 to 10% EBITDA growth, yet they actually gave you 14% growth, despite the impact of the pandemic, no less, plus more new stores than they had originally projected. So I, I like the business very much. What about the stock? Like I mentioned before, Casey's hit a new all-time high a few days ago, and it's only pulled back a few bucks from those levels, unlike most of the stocks I'm following lately. Look, the stock currently sells for just tw- under 24 times this year's earnings estimates and 21 times next year's numbers. If you value it like a convenience store chain, okay, it's a little expensive. But let's say you value it like a pizza chain. It's pretty darn cheap. Domino's, for example, trades at nearly 28 times this year's numbers. Here's what I'll say. Casey's is expected to put up 11% earnings growth next year, which means the stock's selling for nearly two times its growth rate. That's on the more expensive side for me, but it's still justifiable. doesn't hurt that the company's got a pretty clean balance sheet with enough cash to do a ton of consolidation that will boost the earnings down the road. In short, the estimates may prove to be too low. After all, last week, Casey's was supposed to report $3.36 of earnings per share, and they gave us $4.52. Overall, I think the stock can indeed keep working its way higher over time. But it's had a big run. So you might want to put on a small slice here. And then uh, maybe you buy a full pile on a pullback. Bottom line, at a time when so many similar players are just struggling and the dollar stores you can't even look at, Casey's General is thriving. I think this is a terrific, underappreciated business, the kind of stock Wall Street often overlooks because snob money managers wouldn't be willing to go to a Casey's even if that pizza were free. They rarely, if ever, visit small towns in the Midwest and really prefer to fly 30,000 30, miles over them when possible. Unfortunately, it's actually feet. Casey's has already run up a great deal, but you have to hope that the Fed or the bond market or auto strikes takes the stock down to a lower level where you can safely load up the boat on Casey's General Stores. Wow. Been wanting to do that piece. How about Michael in Tennessee? Michael! Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Newell Newell Brands since May at $9.46. Should I hang on, average down, or dump? Well, they do have new management, and the management's got a very, very good plan to be able to get the balance sheet better. They cut the dividend. They've got some, they've got some momentum. They have a game plan, and they have earnings. So I say stay pat. That's what I want you to do. Fareed in New Jersey, Fareed. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Uh, thank you. Uh, my question is Thanksgiving is coming. Christmas is coming. Winter is on the way. The consumer will head it to the mall. 
Macy's PE is five. What do you think about the future of Macy's? Well, look, I happen to love the management Macy's. I like to go to Bloomingdale's. I think it's a good company. But you know what? I'm only saying that the retailers that are working here are, are Costco and Walmart other than Amazon. And I got to stick with that. That's what's working. That's what I'm going with. All right, look, Casey's is a terrific business that's been overlooked by the snobs of Wall Street. Even though it's had a big run, I think you can start a small position here and maybe add some more on pullback. Hey, much more may have might have including a fresh take on the technicals around which this sell-off could finally run its course. I don't want to tell you anymore because it's really incredible. And earlier, we held our monthly meeting for subscribers at CBC Investing Club. We had too many incredible questions sent in by club members. We decided to answer some of them tonight on the show. You don't want to miss it. Hey, by the way, if you enjoy the club and I read your question, raise your name, all that good stuff. Plus, all your calls are having fire in tonight's decision of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. a good call for you. Tonight we're doing a special edition, Thursday edition of Off the Charts with the help of the legendary Larry, Larry Williams. He's a technician market extraordinaire who's been the top expert in the space since before I could drive. Larry's written over a dozen books, created a ton of proprietary technical indicators, many of which are named after him. More importantly, though, he's the guy who warned us that this market would be awful for most of September. He predicted this whole downturn just like you predicted the COVID bottom way back in spring of 2020. Everyone else thought the sky was falling. But get this. Larry also told us to be prepared. He said we we're likely to get a terrific buying opportunity in late September when everyone else was in give up mode, just like today. And that bottom call is based on both seasonality and the cycles he spotted that repeat over and over again in this market. Now that we are here, what do those cycles tell us? Okay. Check out this chart of the NASDAQ. Oh, my God, the people hate the NASDAQ. With Larry's short, intermediate, and long-term cycles in red, green, and blue, respectively. According to him, the blue long-term cycle is the one that has the most impact on the NASDAQ. It's a cycle that's been the most reliable predictor of the action here since the index began trading. And right now, the blue, it's pointing higher. When you project out the long-term cycle over the next couple of months, it's extremely bullish for the Nasdaq. Can you imagine everyone? I, everybody dumped on the Nasdaq today. It was incredible. It was the most trashed of the averages. Next, when you narrow things down from the very long term to the intermediate term, the medium-term cycles, the green line. Okay, it is saying something similar. Larry points out that the intermediate cycle is also pointing to a bottom in the Nasdaq in the very near future. Looking back, he says we've seen this cycle or wave pattern 17 times in the past, and on. 15 of those occasions, the Nasdaq bottomed when the pattern predicted it would. That's over 85% accuracy, which is pretty darn good in this stock market. Finally, check out the red line, which reflects Larry's short-term cycle. The shorter the time frame, the more erratic these patterns can be. However, even with the short-term cycle, it projects that the Nasdaq's likely to bottom sometime early next week, around the 25th, that's right around the corner. You need to know that Larry's constantly looking over the way securities have behaved in the past. That's why I like his stuff so much. He always searches for patterns that tend to repeat themselves. Now, we don't necessarily know why that happens. We only need to know that it happened very reliably in the past. Doesn't mean it'll definitely happen again, but I'd rather bet with these cycles than bet against them. That's especially true when you get a nested set of cycles, just like you see in this chart right here. Larry's long-term, medium-term, and short-term cycle forecasts all project that the NASDAQ, the most hated of indexes, should bottom and then rally in the very near future if it hasn't already. 
when the light when you get the lineup like this, he says there's a very good chance we're in the area where an important low could be formed. I don't know another soul who believes this. Not one, which makes you super interested. Now, Larry admits that he could be coming in a little too early. We might have more downside. But he doesn't think he's wrong with this call. He made that point twice today. Given that he nailed the current downturn in spectacular fashion, I bet he's going to be right again. Bottom line, the charts is interpreted by the legendary Larry Williams, the guy who called the hideous sell-off that we've been experiencing of late, suggests that the pain could soon be over. The Nasdaq's been the most sensitive part of this market. And if Larry's right, it could be, it could be ready very soon to roar Again. Bye, bye, bye. back here the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. It's over the lightning round. Play this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Clippers and Rambo start with Dave in California. Dave. Booyah, Jimmy. Thanks for everything you do for Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that. What's up? Uh, solid Q2 earnings report beating estimates. Uh, great future earnings growth outlook. Hefty backlog. New $150 million stock buyback program and the $65 billion Infrastructure Investment Act allocated to broadband expansion. What are your thoughts on dot-com industries? Dot-com industries, you know what? Everything you said is true, but they also have a lot of telecom exposure. And anything telecom related, like you look at a Crown Castle or, or ATM, or you, you can't. I don't want to be levered to telco spend, and that's got a problem there. Let's go to Nick in Connecticut. Nick. Nick, how are you? Nick, I'm all right. Jim, how are you? I am good. How about you? Good. I wanted to thank you for your past education and good humor. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And I wanted to ask you about a stock. I know you like Nucor. Right, I sure do. Um, I did some research on a company that I like what I see in terms of profit and their diverse end markets that they sell to. And the name of the company that I'd like to get your opinion on is Carpenter Technology. Oh, CarTech. It's a very, very good company. Philadelphia area company. Now, the stock has had quite a run. I don't know if I just want to come in and buy it, but you've got a winner there. I think it's, I have liked that company for many, many years. Let's go to Brett in Texas. Brett. Hey, big booyah, Jim. How you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing all right. I don't know how you do it every morning. Yeah, start with squawk and ending with bad money. But, uh, long days. Long days, but I like what I do. Thank you, though. Hey, send a big booyah to Faber and uh, Carl for me. Love them. All right. Uh, calling about uh, GLNG. Should I throw the dice with uh, Gola LNG? Well, I hate the, the dice roll there. I think you should just go, honestly, if you're going to be in LNG, just go to Kotara, okay? Just go to CTRA. They got a, I know that this is a different kind of play, but I just like the fact that you got a dollar finding cost for a $2.70 uh, product that you sell. I think that's all. I'll do that all day. Let's go to Rip in Colorado. Rip. Hey, Jim. Thanks hey, for Rip. taking my call. I'm of course. Caller. Excellent. Um, I've got this chip equipment stock, Air Test Systems. Very interesting, te- very interesting testing company, a little bit like Agilent. Uh, actually, somewhat like what, em- what Emerson just bought. Uh, and Emerson's been a long time since I recommend that because I was on up that they went to a hostel. But uh, I'd rather see you in Emerson, as a matter of fact. I think it's a better situation. 
Not totally analogous, but I like it. Let's go to Mary in Idaho, please. Mary. Good Friday Eve from Idaho, Jim. Yes. I want to say thank you for all the great advice you give. Oh, thank you. You're most welcome. I'm wondering, uh, with the market being so crazy this week, um, at what percentage in loss of value with a stock uh, should one perhaps consider uh, selling? Specifically, I'm I'm looking at SoFi, and I just, with the way it's had uh, an almost 10% slide, I just was curious what you feel uh, Okay, well, we recently spoke to Anthony Noto. He's the CEO. I mean, what happened here is the stock was at four, and then it basically tripled, almost tripled, and then it's come back. It's got a lot of profit-taking. People worried about the student loans. That's really not what this company does. It's got a great membership. I think, if anything, I'm a buyer, not a seller. So fine. Chuck in California, please. Chuck. Grammar, the uh, C-Daddy. Uh, What's up? At you from Heavenly, South Lake Tahoe. Well, Jim, nice. I'm at the lake, and I was thinking about doing a little bottom fishing. Tell me, am I crazy, or is it okay to do a little nibbling on harmonics, which hit its 52-week it's, low it, it, today? It's in telco and wireless, and that is just not where you can be. It's such a shame that we've just kind of that I've kind of written off a whole industry, but I have to be careful. That industry is not doing well. And it doesn't matter. That is just a bad neighborhood. I don't care if it's a better house. It's a bad neighborhood. Let's go to Perros in California. Perros. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Thank uh, you. really appreciate all you do, as always. Um, got my Niners playing tonight, so excited about the game against the Giants. But Well, wish you uh, best of luck. Absolutely. Here. Um, they have an ROE of 22%. Um, they have no debt on the balance sheet. And they have annualized sales growth over th- over the last five years of 11%. Just wanted to get your thoughts on Wasco, W-S-O. Very, very good company. It's HVAC. I like train. Uh, I got to tell you, if, when you look at HVAC, it doesn't really matter. You can look at Carrier. You can look at Train. You can look at Wasco. Those are all very good stocks. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. Coming up. CNBC Investing Club members had first crack at Kramer with their questions this morning. But we won't leave you hanging. Your hottest queries answered next. I love this day. Why? Because we had the monthly meeting of the CNBC Investing Club where my colleague Jeff Marks and I spent more than an hour exclusively with our club community. We go through the strategies for portfolio, discuss and debate our current holdings, and even take direct questions from club members. More on that later. If you're not yet a member of the club, come on, man, what are you waiting for? we got a special offer right here, right now, for Mad Money viewers only. So grab your phone, open your camera, point at the QR code, or go to cnbc.com slash Offer. And we couldn't get to all the amazing questions that you had. We had a lot of questions. So you know what I'm going to do? I'll take some of them right now. First up, we have a question from Dorothy in New York who wants to know, is it a good idea to invest in any of the home building stocks, such as D.R. Horton, in a higher interest rate environment? Or is it safer to invest in Home Depot or Lowe's? Home Depot and Lowe's are holding up really, really well. The home builders themselves seem to be casualties of the current moment with a little bit higher mortgage rates. People are just sending the stocks down, even though the companies are doing well. 
Home Depot's for you. Next up, we got a question from Laura in California who asks, how should an individual investor approach an IPO, specifically ARM? I've noticed IPOs tend to pull back two weeks after initial launch. Should investors wait or buy a little on launch day and add the position on pullbacks? What you have to do is do what are known as comps. You have to look at other companies in the industry and figure out whether this stock is going to be uh, too high where it opens or too low. In the case of ARM, it opened too high versus Cadence and Synopsis, uh, which were the two that are similar to it in terms of what I call the cops. So therefore, you had to let it come down. I think you still have to let it come down a little more before it's cheap. Now, let's go to a question from Rick, who asks, Hi, Jim. What's your view on the recent downgrades for RTX, and which defense play do you like? Well, first defense, we have like the L3 Harris. RTX is really hard to get your arms around because there are major problems with what was their marquee engine, and I still can't figure out exactly how they got it this wrong and how many more chargers there might be. Nobody knows. It's too open-ended. Next up, we got a question from Jimmy in Texas who asks, Jim, booyah, from Houston, Texas. What has happened to, to the sweetest of all tradable stocks, Hershey? How does this exceptional company return to a position of quality and certainty for investors besides the dividend and gain the trust favor? Okay, this is the, one of the highest valued food stocks. And I don't particularly like these kinds of consumer packaged good stocks at this particular moment unless they've got a good long dividend and their and their costs have come down a lot. That's why the trust owns Procter and Gamble. As I said in our conference, in our monthly meeting, it's just boring. It's not bad. And I feel when I talk about Procter and Gamble, it's really understandable that it's got it's a, what I call a dividend aristocrat. It pays a dividend and it grows and it grows and it grows. It's not interesting. Some parts of my portfolio are not meant to be interesting. This is one of them. Now let's go to Myron in Missouri who asks, Hi, Jim. I joined the club three months ago and love the information that you share. The Magnificent Seven and other AI plays have turbocharged my portfolio this year. I know I should diversify, but it's hard when the future of AI seems so bright. What should I do? You have to diversify. And one of the reasons you have to, and this is why this is such a great question, is days like today. See, if you had nothing but AI... What you would say is, I can't take it anymore. I want to be in something else, and it's not the stock market. This happened in 2000 with the Internet. It could happen in 2023 with AI. We have to stay diversified to make it so that we stay in the game. That's why some stocks, like I just mentioned, Procter & Gamble, they seem so fuddy-duddy, and they seem just such a waste of your capital. It's the opposite. They're diversification. All AI means total punishment 24-7 so far in the last two weeks. So let's stay diversified and accept the fact that not everything is going to go up at once. Next up, we have Walter in Florida who wants to know, Hi, Jim. I purchased Save, that's Spirit Air, almost a year ago based upon their merger with JetBlue. But it's been down since then. What's your forecast for Save? Should I hold, buy more, or sell? I think you thanks. I think you should sell. Let me tell you why. They are trying to do a deal with the Justice Department. Historically, the Justice Department has allowed airlines to be able to sell off some routes and others and then make the merger happen. This particular Justice Department is run by, in the antitrust division, by a fellow by the name of Jonathan Cantor, who's very, very smart and has said over and over again that he does not believe you can cure a deal. In other words, make it so some parts of, of an airline are sold off and therefore it'll work. And the reason he feels that way, frankly, is that a lot of the airline, the reason why airline tickets are so expensive in so many cases is because they did this stuff and it didn't work. So I think the deal is not going to happen. And I suggest you sell and sell tomorrow. Now I have a question from Diane in Ohio who wants to know, 
I'm trying to build a position in a company and at the stage of not owning as much as desired, uh, how do you balance taking profits and building a position? All right. Now, if a stock flies up after you buy the initial position, then what you do is you just sell it. You take a little profit. If the stock goes down quickly after you buy a position, we think that there might be something wrong with it. We've got to do more work. You take a GE Healthcare. I think there's nothing wrong with GE Healthcare. And we've been buying it in stage, in increments, in what will eventually be pyramid style, where the initial part right here is going to get, uh, will look much smaller than when we buy it down here. Why do we have that level of confidence? Because we do the homework. It's about the craft, as I like to say. And by the way, I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries will warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.